2: Thank you for listening to the Words and podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Mary Lou Stevens, former ABC radio presenter and author of the memoir Sex, Drugs and Meditation and the novel The Last of the Apple Blossom. Today I'm talking with Victoria Perman. Victoria is an Australian top 10 and USA Today bestselling author. Her novels, The Women's Pages, The Land Girls and The Last of the Boney Girls, have all been Australian bestsellers. Her earlier novel, The Three Miss Allens, was a USA Today bestseller. Her latest novel is The Nurses' War, based on the true history and real experiences of Australian nurses in World War I. And let me tell you the experience of reading this book.
1: They are very real indeed.
2: Victoria, welcome to the Words and Nerds pod- podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Mary-Lou. Great to be here.
2: You've written for a living most of your adult life, including as a journalist, a publicist and a media manager. You've even been a speechwriter to a premier. What prompted the change in genre from writing news stories, media releases and speeches to writing fiction?
1: Well, actually, I had a midlife crisis. Well, it wasn't actually midlife, but I'd, I'd always wanted to write um, since I was a kid. And um, when I was 15 years old, I won $100 in a women's weekly. No, it was a Women's Day a short story competition. Now, this was 1980, and $100 was huge.
2: Wow, um, and yeah. That-
1: it was. I mean, authors these days have had $100 for a short story. Um, and I bought a typewriter at Kmart, because in those days, Kmart had such things as typewriters. And I thought I would, you know, write stories to be a novelist. It all sounded very glam. But I, um, I didn't really know anyone who was a novelist and creative writing courses didn't exist back then and whether I would have even thought that was realistic I don't know so I took that love of words and I became a journalist and then as you mentioned all those other careers where words are important Um, and it was um, I've got three kids and when my youngest one turned 12 I kind of had this realization that I was way too old already to enter the Miles Franklin those years (laughs) have passed me by but I thought I had the time when when they hit that age, they kind of don't need you to, they need you, they need to know you're in the house and that dinner's being cooked, but they don't need to be right <laughs> near you. And so I was able to close the door and just revisit that dream I'd had. I dabbled over the years, but I just was a bit directionless, really. Um, and so I was, I sort of thought, that's it, I'm going to um, write a book. I didn't set out to write the great Australian novel. I'm not a literary writer, but I just wanted to see if I could do it. And I did a course at um, writer's essay um, and I went on to be um, on the board of writer's essay. That's how much I love that organization. And I did a writing course and that really set me on the, the right path. I, I knew there were lots of things I had to learn and um, I set about trying to learn them. Um, and yeah, And I got a contract with the first manuscript I'd ever written. finished. Finished.
2: that is amazing that doesn't happen very often
1: at all I know and I I think I'm really lucky um but I do say to people having and you would know this too having worked with words your whole life you kind of have that muscle flexed it's kind of like Mm. having it's a different muscle than you use for journalism or speech writing or other things but it's still that muscle about the meaning of words how they flow how they play together writing a speech for someone is actually like writing a story if you do it well um, mm. so I, so that was practice as well I think so that's the kind of long story midlife crisis and I thought if I don't do it now I'm never I'm going to be way too old and then I won't be interested and so that was my sort of impetus about 10 years ago when I was in my just mid-40s right
2: well I gotta say Victoria your muscle was flexed a great deal more than mine
1: because it took four novels before I got published (laughs) well I think it's but part of that is luck part of that is the genre you're writing timing Mm. all those things um yeah yeah you got there in the end um (laughs)
2: you've um your first big break was your first manuscript getting published? And you wrote you wrote romance for many years. What do you love about that particular genre? Well,
1: when I set out, I wanted to write something that I would like to read. And and I've always done very serious jobs. I, I, when I was a speechwriter, I, I wrote speeches for a premier. I've been a political advisor. I've worked in the trade union movement, where the, everything's heavy and hard. And I worked for a minister um, who had difficult portfolios like housing and disability and family services and there are never easy answers or happy stories there on the whole. So I just needed an escape. I didn't want to come home and read something. I wanted an escape and some relief and so they're the books I turn to um, uh, and, and also you can read them relatively quickly and you don't have to go back and think what happened in that last chapter because I had youngish kids mm-hmm. as well and so whatever time I could snatch. So when I thought can I do it, I thought "Well, I'm just going to write the kind of book I would like to read and, and that's what I did. Um, and then the evolution from writing romance to writing historical fiction was a natural one and accidental actually. Oh, um, really? Yeah. In what way, accidental? This- well, I was, um, I published five romance novels. Oh, well, more than that for an American publisher, but five with um, HQ HarperCollins, who, who are my publisher here in Australia. And I went to a funeral, actually, of um, a man who I called Uncle. And he was the happiest, gentlest, kindest man you could ever imagine. He, he and his wife and two, had two sons who were kind of my age, so we grew up like cousins. And it wasn't until I went to uh, Uncle Nick, Nick Herman, is his name, and I went to, we went to his funeral. I went with my mother, and I heard the story about his journey as a child out of um, war-torn. Um, it was in the along the Danube. You can't think of the country now. He was an ethnic German in a place that was not Germany, and had mm-hmm. been for generations. And um, when the Nazis arrived. Uh, he was thrown in jail and his father and his two brothers were executed on the spot. He was eight years old. Oh. And I was, yes. And I was listening to this at the funeral thinking, why didn't I know this about him? Mm. Not that he owed me his story, but I thought there's so many stories about those who came to Australia in those sort of post-war years. My own parents were refugees from Europe in 1949 and then in 19. in 1949, my father was a refugee. In 1956, my mother came with her family. She was younger than dad. Uh, she is younger than dad. Um, and I thought there's stories there that I don't know. And, and I'm a product of migrants. If I don't know them, maybe someone else would be interested. So I wrote The Last of the Bonegilla Girls about that migration experience, um, um, completely because I wanted to honour uh, my Uncle Nick's story and my mother's story and my grandparents' story about coming to Australia and, and that whole experience. And um, it, touring that, with that book was incredible. And I still get emails from people who say, this is my, my family story, or my, my family were in Bonnegilla. I, I was, born, I, I was a, there as an infant or as a young child. And um, it, it's really been really heartening to me to know that so many people have connected with it because your history doesn't have to be um, impo- you know, important, quote unquote, mm-hmm. or glamorous. To be to be relevant and um, crucial to the formation of modern Australia. Um, mm. So th- and that did really well, and the feedback I got was was amazing. And I kind of thought, well, maybe there are more stories that are untold. And the last of the Bonagila girls focused on four women, one an Australian and three um, um, migrants: Italian, Greek, and kind of Hungarian, German, which is what my mum is. And so I thought maybe there's more stories about women in our history that are forgotten um, or or just never told even. They're not even forgotten because no one ever bothered to find out about them. And so that took me off in that tangent, but um, that was completely flukish, really.
2: Um, There is a bit of your family history in your latest book, The Nurses' War, and we will get to that a little later. But The Nurses' War is a a really... um, I don't want to use the word harrowing because it's also a it's a it's a great story, but it you know it's it's very gritty. It's actually described as an extraordinary story of grit, love, and loss. So, could you tell us a bit about the story of the Nurses' War, please, Victoria?
1: Sure. Um, the Nurses' War is about, in, in a broad way, an, a hospital in the, in England, um, in in this in the village of Harefield which was set up four Australians, for Australian troops recovering from battles in, uh, in Europe. Um, and the manor house was owned by the um, Letitia Leake and her family. Now um, Letitia Leake is an heiress from South Australia was an heiress from South Australia from from uh, Glencoe in the southeast. Uh, she married and, and she inherited this enormous fortune. Fought her uncles who tried to rip her off um, and take the fortune, so she was this independently wealthy woman. Now she plays a very minor part in the book, but it just fascinated me that she met Leticia Lick met um, her husband um, who was Mister Billiard, Billiard, and um, they married. And uh, he was a solicitor in Sydney, and they went to the UK and they bought this manor house and they lived there and raised their children. Like, Clearly, she didn't want anything to do with Australia anymore after her uncles. Um, mm. and, and when World War II broke out, um, two of their sons enlisted. And in, in early 1915, um, the Billiard Leaks donated their manor house to the Australian Armed Forces and said, This, is, this can be a place of rest and recuperation for Australian troops injured on the um, continent. Um, it had a bed capacity of 150. They thought it would be a nice. I mean, it was it was a manor house. There were lakes with swans, and it was set in this beautiful, idyllic village. And um, it, it turned into much more than that as the war grew more serious and more deadly. And by the end of the war, fifty thousand Australian troops um, were seen at Harefield Hospital alone. There were other um, auxiliary hospitals in England, and of course, those on the closer to the. The front lines, but this place became a a, a massive treatment center for um, Australians injured in the most horrific ways, as we know and can imagine they were during World War Two, uh, World War One. I. So, I, that's all fact, and and it's factual that five nurses and a matron, matron Ethel Gray, went over on a ship. In they arrived there in May 1915, and they had to clean the house and set up the hospital. And um, I thought these women were incredible. And this is at a time when Australian women were forbidden from um, um, joining the Australian Medical Corps to, to um, treat Australian soldiers or anyone. So these nurses crossed the crossed the world thinking they'd be there for six months. And, you know, four years later they were still there and, and um, mm-hmm. having treated all those thousands of men and um, sent many home to recover. So I just thought it was a fascinating story. I had never heard of it. Turns out, though, that the um, the high school my sons went to, which is Adelaide High School, I was the governing council chair for a few years. And um, when the first funeral happened in Harefield of a a patient at the hospital, the whole town turned up to pay their respects to this young Australian who had volunteered to help save them from the the, the threat of the, the enemy. Um, so the whole town turned up and lined the streets, lined the main street of Fairfield as his, as a funeral cortege made its way to St Mary's Church, uh, where there's the um, cemetery. And at, um, the primary school principal of Fairfield Primary School raced into the school, took the Union Jack, which was flown um, in the yard of the school, and he draped it over the coffin. Became known as the Harefield flag. And that flag um, was draped on the coffins of every one of the 130 odd Australians who died there and were buried in St Mary's. After the war, that flag was donated to Adelaide High School. Mm. It's been restored and it is here in my hometown. So I think there are connections all around. And um, um, I just love piecing those little things together. So that flag still exists. And to think that it it laid on the coffin of all those Australians who were buried so far away from home with families who would never have been able to visit their graves, not back then Mm. anyway. Very poignant story.
2: Yeah. And it's housed at the school where your sons went to school. Yes. I know.
1: Phenomenal. Mm. Serendipitous that was.
2: Now, your main protagonist, Cora, Sister Cora Baker, she's an unmarried woman of a certain age
1: mm-hmm.
2: and determined to do her bit to help wounded soldiers. She's, she's one of the nurses you you talked about, although she's completely fictional who yes. came out from Australia. In what way did marriage or the lack of it shape women's lives in those days?
1: Well, if a nurse was married, she had to resign. Mm. So there were, and that applied along across a whole lot of professions. Um, um, and, and some of that only ended um, until, you know, it didn't end until the 70s, um, where a, a woman in, in banks, women had to um, resign if they got married. I believe in the, mm. certainly in South Australia, in the um, education department, wow. the public sector. Yeah. So it doesn't seem so far away, really. But, yeah, so they were um, um, they were career women in the sense that they knew if they chose marriage, they would have to give up their careers. Um, so uh, I just had this idea that they were really independent, capable women who um, saw that they, their, their brothers and their cousins and their neighbours were all um, signing up to, to do their bit. And we've seen this in every war. It's not kind of recognised, but women want to do their bit too.
2: Mm.
1: If we look at the streets of the Ukraine today, women are bearing arms. They are making Molotov cocktails. Those Ukrainian women are fierce right? They're not sitting in the kitchen cowering. And I think those women of that era wanted to do the same. They knew they had skills. Um, They had, I don't want to say dedicated themselves to their profession. Some may well have um, married and left. They didn't have a choice, but so these were women of a certain age who had chosen um, that life um, of service to patients and chosen, you know, medicine as their life. So I wanted to put them, I didn't want young ingenues because I thought they, they might not have the maturity to understand exactly what they were doing. Although no one, as I said, imagined the war would go on so long. But um, So I've created her as a sort of a sensible older nurse, older. She's about 30. Mm. Um, and um, even though she's older and sensible, the, the things that she sees um, still shock her. Um
2: yeah, it's true. I mean, she goes in with a certain mindset. But how, how do the, um, the years, because she spends years there and everything that she sees there, how do they change her? Uh,
1: I, I did put her through a journey because I was trying to imagine in my head what that would have been like. The, um, thinking back to that era, there wasn't even paracetamol. Wow. You know, mm. h- how do you treat? how what do you do for pain relief? It was morphine. Um, I wanted to give her an independence which she ends up questioning actually, um, because she's just ground down by the war. She's ground down by the death, she's ground down by the injuries. It, by the towards the end of the war and when when things got really bad in you know in phases, when things were bad at the Somme, they were overwhelmed and their numbers would drop off a bit and then there'd be another battle and and they would be overwhelmed. Um, There had been systems of triaging um, injured injured soldiers on the battlefield, but as the casualties grew and grew and grew, there was no time. So they were put onto trains to ships to go to England and they were basically patched up or bandaged and then these auxiliary hospitals, which were meant to be kind of rehabilitation places ended up treating the very worst of the injuries so what she signed up for was not what she got mm. but she saw a greater um a greater calling and a greater need about um, and, and put her own fears aside not that they didn't overwhelm her at times um I did some research into the, the, what happened to nurses when they came back from the war and we know a lot about You know what what was called shell shock uh, for soldiers, or PTSD as it would now be called. Um, But I saw, I I found a paper which talked about the fact that nurses went through exactly the same things, but no one—they were too too embarrassed to admit it. Um, So no no one talked about the men, but it was absolutely unknown that women were in these straits. They were financially um, um, ruined. They were paid very little. They came back. They couldn't. If they couldn't work, there was not barely anything. If they married um, soldiers, um, and some did, the soldiers were coping with PTSD. So then, the, the nurses were coping with their own husbands' mental trauma as well as their own. They ended up homeless, um, in and out of, of hospitals for treatment for their mental health issues. Things were not easy for those women. Um, mm. And without giving anything away I mean you I, I wouldn't have expected to put Cora through that journey without there being some effect on her um mm. and just a, a question for her to question her life as we all would really after having been through so much loss yeah absolutely
2: The Nurses War is your most hard-hitting novel to date um, we've talked about the ongoing death and injuries of the men. It's ever present on the pages. What was it like for you to write, rewrite, and edit this book?
1: What effect did it have on you? Yeah, it, it was the hardest book I've I've written, and I've written uh, eighteen. Mm-hmm. I just had to check the number. I've written eighteen. It was definitely the hardest book I've I've had to write. The subject matter was tough not as tough as being there obviously and I don't want to make myself you know into a martyr we do this because we love it but it was mm. tough and there was a balance of how do you portray the violence and the, the damage and the death to those people on the page without making it seem like just page after page of misery um, there were light times that we know that there's a sort of black sense of humor that you know Australians especially have I think And that doctors and nurses have to this day, they they exhibit that black sense of humour to to kind of cope with the the stress and the um, devastation of what they feel, even in modern times in our hospitals here. When people are sick, it can be very upsetting. So I tried to balance that in the book, but I had to research the kinds of injuries that soldiers had. There was actually... um, um, a a limb clinic established at Harefield Hospital by Mr. Billy Bleak who thought it would teach injured soldiers some skills that they could use when they got back home to Australia. And it it turns out they did because there were so many men who lost legs Um, um, and the photos of the patients at the time. and, And I use that in the book too. There'd be, the nurses would arrive to tuck someone in and there was only one leg under the Mm -hmm. sheets, or a a soldier would come in on crutches and the leg of his uniform was pinned up, you know, um, flapping about because there was no limb inside. Um, So it it was a question of balance. It it was also hard because of COVID, I think, and um, anyone doing anything creative or just any, you know, life became complicated for people. Um, yeah. And in the midst, just at the beginning of COVID, a really dear friend of ours died very suddenly and it seemed really hard to write about grief mm. and, make it, and make it realistic and not mawkish. So for all those reasons, maybe it's, I hope it's my best book. And for all those reasons about it being hard, maybe I really pushed myself. I hope that's the case, but it was tough. And I think life's been tough for everyone in the past two years. I'm no orphan in that respect so yeah
2: yeah well v- victoria i have read all of your books and i do think it is your best one to date. it's an incredible story it really is and it opened my eyes to a lot of things as well i am talking to um, victoria perman on the words and nerds podcast today and victoria early on i i mentioned um a family connection to the book and this connection is through your husband I believe and I'm talking about the character of Jessie Chester so how did she make her way into
1: this story? Well it was so funny again it was serendipity when I was researching the women's pages um, there's a story plot in there about the um, um, soldiers who were on the the ship the Montevideo Maru I won't give anything away because if people haven't read it, it's a big plot spoiler. But I was in the um, um, National Library, the archive. I was in the Australian Archive, looking at and holding the letters of soldiers who'd been on the boat and they are in plastic slips. So I could see the the actual handwriting of those soldiers who were prisoners of war um, writing to their mothers usually, you know, dear mother, don't worry, I'm fine. They weren't fine, they were prisoners of war. Um, mm. that the, the Japanese are nice and I'm well fed. Well, we know that wasn't true. So while I was sitting at a desk doing this, my husband was at the uh, um, at a computer with some of the volunteers and they always, like, and there's a sign saying, come and research your family history. Um, and he said, um, and he had two dear, dear uncles who I'd met um, when I first met my husband. they have been dead quite a while now. Uncle Dud and Uncle Reg. They both served in World War I. In fact, Uncle Dad put his age up from 16 to 18 to join the Navy. So Stephen thought he'd just look at the war records of his uncles. And um, the man typed their name into the computer and spat out a whole lot of things. It turns out there was a, we always knew there was a, um, his great uncle served in World War I and died at, um, died at Ypres. Um, and his records came out too. Stephen said, Oh, you sure I have those. And all these printouts came, and we got back to the hotel and we we're looking at them, and there were letters from a woman called Jessie Higginson asking about her fiance. Mm. Turns out that the great uncle had been engaged to Jessie um, and had was looking for him. Something happens to him. And I thought that was so poignant and beautiful. And it just—it it was just an insight into it. And she's a, a young English girl from Hairfield who volunteers in the village in my book. I've sort of fictionalised her a little bit. But so many young women never married after World War One mm. because so many men died. Um, and so I wanted to portray the hopes of that generation, too, of young English women who um, saw the threat on their doorstep and embraced the Australians um, as kind of long lost cousins because of course our cultural ties are so strong and, and then just what happened to them as well. So I've used the actual words from Jessie's letters in the book and I do credit her. I, I wasn't able to find any sign, uh, hide nor hair of her um, in my research um, without actually going to England. I had planned, I was planning to do it. Uh, booked my tickets in February twenty
2: twenty. Wow. And then we yes happened. <laughs> yeah.
1: So that's that's my one. That's another regret about COVID. That it really it stopped me from walking those streets of Harefield yeah. and visiting the hospital and doing all those things. But I just thought Jessie was such a lovely character, and you could see it in her in her letters that um, so polite. And so I created Jessie as a, um, a seamstress from the village who, who sews, has a sewing business with her mum. And the, the Australians arrive in the village and um, she decides to volunteer at the hospital, which, which is where she meets um, the, the person she falls in love with, an Australian soldier. So there's another I, snippet of real life in that too.
2: Yes, absolutely. And talking of real life, with Jessie as a seamstress, I noticed you're a seamstress yourself, Victoria. So is what came yeah. first, Jessie being being a seamstress or you being a seamstress? Were
1: you inspired well, by all, Jessie
2: or the other way around?
1: Oh, well, A bit of both, actually. I, I've always sewed rather badly. I remember <laughs> being 10 years old and sewing costumes for my Barbie dolls on my mum's sewing machine. Um, and I've done it on and off over the years, um, but I really just lately thought I just want to pick up that skill again and it's it's a way to escape the concentration that's required when writing as you would know you really have to put your head in it and I thought I just need to do something else that's creative Um, and Mm -hmm. I um, pulled out my sewing machine and I started with making a a cover for a day bed and then the sewing machine died (laughs) I must say it's 35 it was 35 years old my genome and I thought that's it I'm buying a new sewing machine and I'm, and so now I'm in the world of fantastic fabrics and great patterns, and um, making my own clothes, which is so satisfying. I did a collar and buttonholes a
2: Ooh. month or so ago
1: for the first time. Oh, that's
2: tricky. I admire <laughs> you, I do. Oh, Lord. But, but I always <laughs>
1: say to, but I always say to women, you know, find. It, we give so much out all the time. Find the thing that the creative pursuit that makes you happy. It might be. Mm you know working on your car god i'd be hopeless at that but it might be that or it might be (laughs) exercise or cooking or sewing embroidery or i think we have to embrace those crafts that are traditionally seen as women's and reclaim them and say yes these are women's crafts Mm. and they're important and they bring women together Um,
2: i I, I totally agree i learned to crochet last year I formed a crochet circle and that whole oh. thing of sitting sitting with women and doing something like that is embracing and empowering. It's just lovely. And you, and you can feel that sense of it, you know, having gone on for generation after generation after generation, that kind of activity.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And, and when my boys, I've got three sons, and when they were little, I would sit with mum and we'd make little tracksuit pants and little like fleecy tops and things for them. And, and that was a way for my mum and me to spend time together too. So, mm. yes, it, it, it absolutely connects women in ways that um, we have to reclaim, especially now, I think. We're looking, people are looking for community and, yeah, you know, it, it's the simple things, I don't mean that it's a simple thing to do because crocheting, I, I can't do it still. And I can knit only up and down and make a scarf.
2: Yes, yes, <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. the same. <laughs>
1: uh, but I'd love to make a jumper one day or something like that. So yeah. we, have to, we have to reclaim those things, which maybe as feminists of our generation, we just said, no, they, we're not going to do those. Our mother did those. Mm. And maybe yeah. our, our kids might say the same to us. But um, what I know is that women read more than men in, in this country and probably all over the world. We have so many Australian women writers um, and I think mm. we have to celebrate all those things about being women again, women's stories, women writers, um, women podcasting, you know, women doing craft and reclaiming all those things that we um, we push to one side, actually. Um, mm. it, yeah. it heals your heart, I think, to do those things. Oh,
2: absolutely. It really does. <laughs> Now, getting back to The Nurses' War, you've used a few real characters in this novel, Matron Bray and Sister Dickinson, for example. What's the the protocol around using
1: real people in fiction? Look, that's a tricky one for me. They're not main characters by any stretch, and I I have actually put Letitia Billiard-Leak in there as well and her daughters, but only in minor roles because I'm not an historian and it is a fiction book. um, Sister Ethel, matron Ethel Gray was the first matron of Harefield Hospital. she she arrived in that back in May 20, May nineteen fifteen uh, and established the hospital. and i I didn't want to invent another matron because I thought matron Gray was just such a great woman. Um, she went on to she left um, Harefield. In, in 1917, if my memory serves, and then went to work in uh, France and was awarded for that work. And when she came back to Australia, she actually established a rehabilitation hospital. So she's a rocking woman, Sister, mm. mate, sister Ethel, a matron Ethel Gray. So I didn't want to write her out of the history as well. But uh, but I didn't um, create big scenes with her because I didn't want to show any disrespect to the to her. Um, and and mm. Nurse Dickinson was the first. Woman, a first and only woman to be buried at the Harefield Cemetery. She died of the flu, in influenza, Spanish flu. Um, so I didn't want to again wipe her from history by inventing a character, to and to give her that same fate. Um, but the, but it's a um, minor, minor characters yeah. in the book. But re, I hope respectfully written. Mm, very much so. It now, is on- tricky for me. Oh. Yep. Sorry, but yeah, I think yep. it is a wider question about it's trickier for me when people write about someone who was really famous and fictionalised their life. I, I don't know if I could do that. I kind of feel strange about that. How, how can you know someone else if it's not a biography? I, I don't know.
2: For myself, mm. I think if it's deep historical fiction. So if you're writing about someone, say, you know, from the medieval times or even into the 1800s uh, i reckon that'd be okay but it is interesting territory when you get into the 20th century and beyond yeah i agree a uh, victoria Perman, the nurses war. the byline on the book is winning the battle will take more than guns and that for me it's a great byline by the way um but it, it's also it's saying this is this is the women's story that we've been talking about. These are the stories that you uncover that are important to tell. And I love historical fiction for that, because it tells the stories that have been forgotten, as you were talking about before, the stories that weren't told by the historian, historians who, who thought that they were you not know, unimportant for women's work or whatever like that. And um, I love the way that in, in your body of work, your later books, you have taken those stories and you've brought them to light through your work. So I just wanted to say a big thank you for that.
1: Oh, mm. thank you. I do appreciate that. And it's tricky with war fiction, which is, a, I suppose I've written in and around World War II and now World War I. Sorting through the facts of history, facts, inverted mm. commas, it, no one knows the names of the nurses who served at Harefield Hospital. To find out, I would have had to somehow magically guess their names and look at their service records, for instance. Mm. Um, no one's quite sure how many nurses served in World War One. About 2,300, they think. So all these women's history and experiences were gone because we so often see war as battles and guns and ammunition. Mm. Right. Um, I, I don't want to hark back to Ukraine too much, but I think the, me- the, the modern means of communication are really changing that for us, right? We're seeing um, people fighting this war, um, whereas in the past it's been that particular rifle and that gun and that bomb and that tank um, which, which comp- well it, it um, an- anonymizes the men who died in one sense, but it also completely wipes out the work of women in, those, mm. um, in the battle uh, on the battlefields, in the hospital ships, just moored off Gallipoli they were seeing you know uh, troops literally in dinghies across from from the slaughter um so it it is really important to me to know you can't be it if you can't see it you know that I love that expression um Mm. and I think as women we have to stay we know we have to we're standing on the shoulders of those women but we don't know who they are or, or where they were and that's um that's part of my um raison d'etre about what I do, I think.
2: Mm. Well, thank you for that. I'm going to finish up this interview with um, a question that's a bit of a favourite on the Words and Nerds podcast. Victoria Perman, why do you write?
1: It's simple and hard all at the same time. But it, it alludes to just what I was talking about, that I find these stories fascinating. And I figure if I find them fascinating... Someone else might. Um, they might pick up one of my books and say, "I didn't know we had a Women's Land Army um, in Australia." Well, oh, that's interesting. You mean you mean women actually, you know, worked on farms and did research work and um, made parachutes and all that to support the war. Well, I didn't know that. Maybe maybe women have had a bigger role in our past and our economy than we actually think. That to me is a win, um, and and I love unleashing that curiosity in readers as well so um, that's why I write to actually to honor all these women in our past who no one cared about
2: well I'm very glad you write Victoria Perman thank you so much for joining us on the Words and Nerds podcast it's been my
1: absolute pleasure Mary Lou
0: The Words and Nerds universe content is created by many talented people. We have the usual episodes and live streams hosted by me, Danny V. There are three regular spin-offs, the popular Burgers, Beers and Books hosted by Ben Hobson, the regular Takeover hosted by Nathan J. Phillips, and a different page hosted by Josie Layton. Check the Words and Nerds website for more details. We also have Takeover episodes where an author interviews another author and they take the conversation wherever they like. Throughout the year, we also have short spin-offs like the Summer Series Takeover, the Nano NaNoWriMo Series, and the Publishing Insider Series. You can find all of these episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll also find us on social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, Danny B Books, Words and Nerds Podcast. Stay safe and read more books.